Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Because, you know, seven-year-olds parachute all the time. And, and my parachute doesn't open up. How fast can I ask for forgiveness of sins before I hit the ground? And I would try to, I would practice that. That's wrong, okay? That, I don't know where I got that. I'm sure my parents didn't instill that in me. I came up with weird ideas. But that's not the way God works. God wants to save us. And he's going to do everything in his power to try to do that. Case in point, he sent Jesus, his only unique, special, begotten son, to this world to die so that we don't have to. If you want the fact that he wants to save you, it's that. As Tom said, he could have condemned the world. He could have come on and judge you all. But no, he came to this world so that we might be saved. If we place our trust in him, if we believe in him, he's not this cruel, mean God looking for a reason to condemn us. He's a loving, compassionate, merciful God who's trying everything in his power to keep us out of hell. That's what he's trying to do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We don't pay our own debt. We can't. Jesus paid it for us. And this idea, and this might not be so much of what he's talking about here, but I do want to bring this up. This understanding of God is so important. I was in a conversation um, with a a girl, it's been probably a couple months ago now, um, who just confessed that she was a homosexual. And um, this is someone who was a believer in all of this. And, And I reached out to her. And um, I said, hey, I just wanted to, you know, touch base with you a little bit. And I don't remember all of our conversation. But um, the main thing this girl was really struggling with is, she said, the way God has been presented to me is that he can't love me. And because of these different desires and things and all the stuff that I have. And I said, you have a false idea of God. And I said, I'm sorry that that was presented to you that way. Because the God I read about in Scripture, and we, I, you know, I said, of course, we're going to work through all sorts of different sin stuff and all that. I said, but the God I read about in Scripture is a loving God. He loves us in spite of our sins. He doesn't want us to sin, but, but he cares so much about, it, about you that he sent Jesus to die for you. He's not this mean God up there looking, wanting to, to punish you. And she had this idea that, well, I've always been told if I mess up, you know, I'm, I'm going to be lost, and, and I've messed up, you know, that kind of, no. That's not the God I see in Scripture. And I've had that conversation with a lot of people over the years where they have this misunderstanding of God, where I've had people come to me with some weird scenarios where they're wondering about whether or not a loved one is lost or saved and and, and all this kind of stuff. And I don't know the answers in all situations. I've had weird situations over the years where people come up and ask me whether or not their spouse that just died is going to heaven. First off, don't ever ask me that, okay? I'm not God. But second, what I always lean upon with people is this. In situations where it's weird or cloudy or confusing, just know 100% that God is a merciful and loving God and he wants to save you. Just frame it all with that and you can kind of back out of that, that worry a little bit. When situations are strange or weird or confusing, just trust that if there's a way that God could save you, he would do it. I think that's a good way to look at God. If there's a way that God could save you, he would do it because that's why he sent Jesus, not to give us all these paths to hell, but to give us an opportunity to spend eternity with him. Now, 
before anybody says, well, I thought we had to follow Jesus. Absolutely, we're going to talk about that. It's not that God doesn't have requirements of his relationship with us or, you know, doesn't want us to obey him, but trust that God is a loving God. Before I move on, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that illustration, God looking upon us like a child and we're the parent in the background, like, come on, do the right thing, make the good choice, you know, that kind of thing. I like that. I think that makes sense. Yes. And isn't it good that we're not the judge? I, I'm so glad that I'm not, well, I sometimes think I'm pretty judgmental, but, <laughs> but I'm glad I'm not the judge of humanity, okay? Because first off, I'd much rather have God do it. God who's 100% loving, because Cliff Sabro's not, okay? I'm not loving all the time. I'm not all truthful all the time. I'm not all good all the time, but God is. So we have God who's all truthful, all loving, all good, who can know all things, in our minds, outside of our minds, all of that. I'd much rather him be the one who's going to pass judgment and, you know, and also be the one who's going to extend grace and mercy because he's going to be fair, consistent, and have all the facts. Cliff Sabro does not have all the facts. Let's keep going. He who believes in him, verse 18, is not judged, but he who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the idea of, you know, you are condemning yourself. It, it, you're standing condemned. You're standing judge because of your lack of faith. But I also want to note that notice what he says you believed in. Verse 18, you have not believed in what? The name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, he's mentioned this idea of having life in his name later in the book, and it's going to come up again. But the idea of the name of Jesus here. What does that entail? Why, why that emphasis here on believing in his name? Okay, he's God. What else? Yes? Okay, kind of what Jim said, there's no other name by which you can be saved because he's God. What else? Yes, Kenny? Okay, yeah, it's not the, not the name of Jesus, not the correct name. What does... I think there's another layer here that we need to unpack a bit. When I say that we baptize in the name of Jesus Christ, what am I saying? His authority. And I think that's what we see here. When you do something by the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, I offer this prayer. Through his authority, I do that. And you see in scripture, like with casting out demons, was it the authority of the disciples that casted out the demons? No. It was the authority of Jesus. So when they did it in the name of Jesus, it's Jesus' authority working through them. If someone says, stop in the name of the law, what are they saying? Yeah, they have authority by the law, by their office as an officer or whatever, you know, to tell you to stop. The name of brings authority, legitimacy, and all of that to it. So if someone believes in the name of the only begotten Son of God, it's not that they just believe, oh yeah, that's Jesus, he's him. No, you are acknowledging the authority. This is kingdom-type terminology, you know, in the name of Caesar, you know, that idea. You would have inscriptions on coins and, and seals on documents, 
that showed authority by the name of the one producing it or by the one in charge. Here, it's the name of the only begotten Son of God that you believe. So there's authority there. And I think that also lets us understand what belief is all about. If you believe in the authority of Visalia PD, you're going to do what a police officer tells you to do, right? Because you believe in the authority, you believe in the name. If they said stop in the name of the law, you respect the authority of that name and you follow it, you submit to it. Here, we believe in the name of Jesus. It's not just, oh yeah, I believe Jesus is his name. No, I believe that his name carries authority, power, rule. You think about later on in Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, right? That's Jesus. He has all that authority. It's found in his name. Comments on that? Yes, Carlos. Yeah? I mean, yeah, it is above, it is above all and it is well, I agree with you. God's law is, is supreme over all things. Jesus' authority is greater than any man's authority. Um, absolutely, yeah. He's got power beyond that we can understand. And yeah, absolutely, Colossians 1.17. Well, let's read verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and that men love darkness rather than, Eve, rather than the light for their deeds are evil. Now, this is typical John way of talking. He likes contrast. He likes these paradoxes and things like that. So verse 19 again, the judgment that came into the world, or this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested, having been wrought in God. This is a, an abstract way of kind of looking at this, but I believe what he's doing is John is describing, or, or Jesus is describing, you know, John's writing it down, this idea of himself being the light. Jesus is the light of the world. He comes into the world, and light brings guidance, light brings enlightenment, light brings hope and salvation and all of that, eternal life. However, there's some people that are going to not believe or they're going to reject the light. That means the same thing. To not believe in Jesus is the same thing as to reject the light. The people that don't come to the light stay in darkness. And then he explains why. Why would it be that someone in the darkness would not come into the light? Because they love the darkness? Why else? What would you say? They don't want to be exposed. That as Jim mentioned, they love darkness. As Bob mentioned, they don't want to be exposed. It's this idea, there's safety in the darkness a little bit, right? You can be sneaky in the darkness. You can hide in the darkness. There's a reason why I don't let my kids go out skateboarding at night. Because more likely to do something dumb, okay? There's, there's less people watching, okay? That idea. Darkness is where crime happens a lot of times. Normally, a lot of us probably keep your door locked in the daytime, but nighttime, you lock it, which is weird because crime happens in the daytime too, by the way. But, um, you know, the idea that we can hide in the darkness, but when you come to the light, you can't hide anymore. 
Have you ever been like in, in a hotel that had like the perfect lighting in the bathroom? You're like, I look pretty good right this. And then you flip the switch to the fluorescent ones. You're like, oh, no. You know, right? Because the light shows up. Have you ever stood <laughs> HD cameras, okay? They don't make us all look ugly. They show us for how we actually look. Okay, have you noticed that now? How much makeup newscasters are wearing? Because the HD cameras show all the imperfections, all the little blemishes that we get when we get older and wrinkles and all of that. We like the darkness. But here, he says people don't like Jesus because they like darkness because when they come to Jesus, they are exposed. Jesus brings all the truth out. The truth, it always comes out in Jesus, and when you come to him, you can't hide anymore. Yes, Jim. And there's all this parallel in that, that do you love darkness or do you love light? Do you love sin or do you love obedience to Christ? Do you love, you know, all of that, and it just keeps building upon it here. Yeah, it is. Oh, I love Jesus. No, you just have a picture of him on your desktop or something, you know, yeah. It's more of that, yeah. Yeah, how does that how that feel, what that consists of, all of that, yeah, it is, it is unfathomable. Yeah. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, maybe because there's a little bit of a way to hide in the darkness. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, you know, he didn't want maybe some of his other Jewish friends to see his dialogue. And now in Jesus' concluding comments to Nicodemus, he brings up light and darkness. I think Curtis is right. There's something going on there that's tr- meant to catch Nicodemus' attention too. And don't forget, that's why I kept this on the screen this whole time. This is all a dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. This isn't a sermon written to us. Okay? This is Jesus explaining some things. And, and Nicodemus is hearing all of this. I'm sure he doesn't understand all of it, but he's getting this idea. I need to believe in Jesus. Jesus is the way I have eternal life. And men love darkness rather than light because... Your deeds are exposed when you come to the light. But if you practice the truth, verse 21, you're going to come to the light and you don't care if your deeds are exposed because you come to Jesus. That's the lesson that Nicodemus needs to hear. We don't hear what happens after that right here. We don't know exactly the immediate time following what Nicodemus did. This dialogue ends in verse 21. So John, by inspiration, lays out this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, which contains a lot of, Abstract ideas of light and darkness, testimony, the wind, the spirit, born again, and it kind of gets our attention. We're like, what? What is all this? And then we go into more evidence. And John does that. He'll roll out some teaching of Jesus that's really profound, and then he goes into evidence, evidence, evidence again. And he draws you into that way, trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. So let's keep going then. Or, well, any questions or comments up through verse 21? Yeah, Don. I have a hard time articulating it. I think it's this idea that when we come to Jesus, the truth comes out. And there's, I think there's a, a way of John's trying to explain that light versus darkness idea here. It says, okay, what you thought you were doing or what other people thought you were doing, you could fool others, you can't fool God. When you come to Jesus, you really see who you really are. And those people who truly believe in Jesus, truly Produce the fruits of the Spirit. Truly do good. Truly live true lights. And I, like I said, I have a hard time articulating. I kind of see what he's doing. It's if we follow Jesus, when you come to him, 
you're going to see good works happen, but the good works originate from God. And kind of that idea. Yeah, Jim. And you can't imagine the great works you're going to get to do for God until you come to the light. But when you come to the light, God's going to do some great things through you. Other thoughts? Yeah. And even the whole book of 1 John about the idea of if you are in Christ, you're going to love your brother, all this kind of stuff, all the truth comes out about what it means to be a child of God. All right, so this dialogue with Nicodemus ends then. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He's, they're working through this issue. Nicodemus started with a question basically about, hey, you seem to be, have the power of God. He learns about being born again. He learns about the spirit. He learns about eternal life found in Jesus Christ. He learns about the light versus darkness and truth versus lie. And then, boom, this conversation stops. And in verse 22, it says, after these things, and this is how John does it in the beginning. He gets your attention. You're like, whoa, I want more. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and he was spending time with them and baptizing. Well, now we have, because previously, who was baptizing? John the Baptist, right? But now you got Jesus who's baptizing. He's now out here in this region, in the land of Judea. He's spending time with his disciples, and he is baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, which, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown in the prison. The reader in the first century, I thought John died, because he did. And later on, you remember Herod and Herodias and all that has his head chopped off. Um, John lets us know this hasn't happened yet, kind of giving us some time frame markers, because there's a little bit of jumping around and some of this going on here. So Jesus is baptizing, and John is baptizing, and many people were coming and being baptized, and John had not yet thrown, been thrown in the prison. This is, I think you got to keep this in mind a little bit here too, because this passage about being born of the water and of the Spirit and being born again, right after that you have baptism, which is symbolic of a new birth. I think that's there intentionally. But verse 25, therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Purification rituals of the Jewish people included immersions, baptisms. Baptism is our English word, okay? So that conversation would make sense a little bit. If you have all these people out there baptizing people, there might be a discussion about purification. Verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man cannot receive nothing unless it has been given to him, given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. We don't know all the questions they're having, but it seems to be that some of these people that are around John the Baptist are confused. They're like, wait, you're baptizing, but that guy up north has people coming to him, and he's baptizing them, but you said that someone is coming in the future that's greater. What all is going on here? Because at this moment, you have kind of an overlap of baptisms, I guess you might say. You have Jesus baptizing people, 
and he's the Messiah, the Son of God, coming to save the world, and you got John, who was baptizing people for repentance, telling them to get ready because the Messiah is coming. Well, now the Messiah is here. John's baptizing, and people are kind of confused about where they should place their attention. Should their attention be on John, or should their attention be on Jesus? Well, of course, but that's a fair question because a lot of people were following John the Baptist, and was John the Baptist a prophet of God? Yes. Was he someone important? Yes. Jesus even said that he's like the best man that ever lived. So he's an important figure. But John wants his followers to understand something, that he is not the Christ that he was sent ahead of. In verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, or, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. The job of the best man at a wedding is to not to get all the attention. Most best men forget that, and they try to get all the attention for themselves with some lame toast or dumb jokes. But the job of the best man is to be there for the groom and to get all excited and happy when the groom shows up and he's getting married and that's great. You're there to support the groom. John the Baptist is kind of in that position. And our role of a best man versus, you know, this kind of idea here would probably be a little bit different, but you get the point. John's job was to not get everybody to follow him. At the wedding, you pay attention to the couple. You're not supposed to, and even not even the groom, it's usually the bride. But here he says his job as the attendant to the bridegroom is to rejoice when the bridegroom appears. And that's the idea here. John's job was to point people toward Jesus so that they could pay attention to him and not John, because the attention is supposed to be on Jesus. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Explain John the Baptist's role. How does John understand his position? He's preparing the way for Jesus. What else? Yeah, Jesus is going to be the main focus, as Bob says, and John's going to have to step aside. Good leaders know how to do that, by the way. It's hard for some people to give up influence and power. It's hard for some people to step aside. You know, I've had preacher friends and stuff over the years that, that take on a preaching work in the place where the guy who'd been the preacher for the last 50 years is still there but not preaching anymore. Sometimes it works out great, and you got mentorship and all that, and sometimes it works out awful because some guys have a hard time stepping aside. I guarantee it. I, if, I, if I ever step down here from this pulpit, I don't think I could exist in this audience because I'm so judgmental of preachers. I'd be the worst person in the audience. I'd be like, the whole time. Which it's a sin. I'll work on it. But I mean, you understand? It's hard to step aside. John has been in a huge prominent role. He's been preparing people for the coming of the Messiah. And he has disciples too. He has followers. He has people he's baptizing. He is respected. He is looked up to. And now he has to back away, step aside. John does that wonderfully. He always places the attention on Jesus. He says this in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. By the way, a long time ago, and I don't know when I wrote that, I wrote this, remember this in the pulpit. That's the pulpit area, okay? Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. My job as a preacher is to not get the attention to me. My job is to draw the attention to Jesus. If I ever forget that, kick me out, okay? 
because that's the same role that John had. Yes, Yvonne, and then I think I saw another hand. Oh, I don't see John. I'm not faulting John at all. I think John did do it, but I'm saying he, what he did do goes against what a lot of people would do. Yeah, that's what shows his character to be so great. Other thoughts? Yeah. You win someone with greater, if you didn't hear Curtis, John understands when someone with greater authority comes in there, you can't challenge that. John recognized, and this is testimony of John here, a witness again, he saw the authority of Jesus. So much so that he stepped aside, which shows that John recognizes who Jesus is. If John said, hold on, let me see what happens, let's see how this plays out a bit before I back away, he didn't do that. He, when he recognized Jesus, he backed away because he saw his authority. He knew that he was, you know, the guy in charge. Yeah, Kenny. Yeah. He saw the power. He took on the lesser role. And that's what he was supposed to do. Other thoughts before we move on? Yeah. Yeah. He did. Yeah, he's, he's introducing us to, you know, the John has an influence over people, but he's directing attention. They know you need to pay attention to the Son of God. Yeah. He, he introduces them, yeah. And then he steps away from the podium, the introducer, right? You don't, you don't see them anymore. Yeah. They don't come back. Yeah, they didn't get that. And John recognized it, though, and he saw that. Well, I'm going to give a couple more verses here, and then we'll have to stop. We're about out of time. But then verse 31, he who comes from above, this is John the Baptist talk, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. As Curtis mentioned and Bob mentioned others, he recognized the authority of Jesus. John says, look, People who come from the earth are not that important. And it's a general term, you know what I mean. But someone who comes from heaven is above all. Who came from heaven? Jesus, right? And so John says he who came from heaven is above all. John the Baptist is telling everybody to follow Jesus right here. He who came from heaven is above all. He says, verse 32, what we have seen and heard of this he testifies, and no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has certified that God is true. He knows it. Jesus is that Messiah. John wants people to realize that too. Then verse 34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has entrusted all things into his hands. John says, the one that you see right now came from heaven. The one that you see right now speaks the word of the Father. The one who you see right now gives the Spirit without, you know, um, any limitations. The one you see right now, the Father loves and has entrusted all things to him. John wants his audience to know that Jesus is the Son of God. And when you know that Jesus is the Son of God, what should you do? Believe in him. And we're going to have to talk more about verse 36 next week because there's a lot to unpack right there. But when you understand who Jesus is, you believe in him. And believing, you may have life in his name. Let's close with a prayer and then we'll be, have about a 15-minute break to worship. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus. May we place our faith and trust in him and live for him always, knowing that he is the Son of God, that he is Lord, that he has been entrusted with all authority over all things. And may we submit to it at all times. It's through his name we pray. Amen. All right, you're dismissed at this time.
Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless. Thank you.